Hi, my name's Graham Trigg. I'm Head of Client Services here at Hempson's. Welcome back to the latest edition of the Hempson's podcast. Today I have with me Stephen Hooper. Stephen's an associate in the regulatory and crime team. And today we're going to be talking about dental regulation in the shadow of COVID-19. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. Um, it's been a while since I've seen you, Graham. It's been, I've been sort of holed up in my house for three weeks now, but uh, how, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. I, you're not alone. There seems to be something going on out there. I'm not quite sure what's causing all this. But uh, anyway, on the subject of which, without too much levity, let's, let's crack on. We're going to talk today about dental regulation in the shadow of COVID-19. Clearly, masses of challenges for the entire healthcare system and regulation clearly is going to be a very important factor in making sure that out of this chaos comes as much order as, as we can man, as we can manage to muster in the dental world clearly gdc is the main regulator now we know it's not their style necessarily to uh, set detailed clinical standards uh, in, in in regulatory terms but clearly we're in a novel and new and unique situation how are they approaching their regulatory role um, in respect of coronavirus and the challenges it brings us? Well, it's fair to say um, they, they've churned out a, a quite a lot of guidance and there have been various statements um, pumped out certainly over the last few weeks. And uh, I mean, they started off by saying, you know, the GDC doesn't set uh, detailed clinical standards because that's not what we're here for. And to be fair, that's, that must be correct because obviously they will issue the overarching guidance and, and, and the rules ultimately for the whole profession. But of course, we have four separate nations uh, in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so really what they're allowing is they're sort of providing some generic, non-specific guidance about what to do, um, but then leaving the nitty gritty detail to the four more local uh, regulatory bodies. So from England, uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so that that's really. I wouldn't go so far as to saying taking a back seat because they have they have issued guidance periodically, um, and but it, it's it's far more generic in the sense of saying you know that they want to, for example, minimise uh, the burden of time and attention imposed on registrants, but maximise flexibility to manage professional activities in response to the obviously enormous challenges of COVID nineteen, and the overall sort of tenor of what they're saying is that they, they they acknowledge that dentists are going to be stepping into unknown territory uh, and that in doing so they may they may need this is a quote from from their guidance that professionals may need to depart from established procedures in order to care for patients uh, and people using health and social care services but what they don't do is say what they mean uh, by yeah. departing from established procedures they really leave that to the more local bodies to to distill downwards. Yeah, it certainly leaves some room for interpretation, doesn't it? It it does, and I think that's the main concern for dental practitioners: is well, what exactly am I allowed to do and not to do? And most importantly, when am I supposed to treat and refuse to treat patients? I think that's the real mm-hmm. concern. But, but as I said, I think that the the more um, the clearer guidance has been disseminated down from the from England. Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. So there is there is some guidance, but the the GDC is very much kind of taking a back seat and um, uh, sort of con- conducting from a from afar. Uh huh. So you said that they have been releasing some some of their own guidance. Uh, we'll deal with the, the other 
bodies later on in, in this conversation, no doubt. But uh, so, so what, what what have they been saying that that has gone into a little bit of detail from the GDC's point of view? Yeah. Well, what they what they're doing in terms of um, it, that, well, there's two sort of two strands for it. One in terms of the the overall. Um, uh, 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 position statement and of course there was a, initially in March a joint statement from all of the health and care regulators mm -hmm. saying that everyone of all registered uh, regulated professions needs to use their professional judgment to assess risk uh, to deliver safe care informed by relevant guidance and the values and principles set out in their professional standards and ultimately what they're doing with dentists is then saying you know where the risk of infection and that's both from patients to staff and the other way around if that's if that risk is greater than the risk of not treating the patient, then they accept in those circumstances it may be better for everyone and in everyone's interest not to, to carry on. Uh, and what they've been clear is to say, and this is a quote as well, that they're not going to second guess judgments made on that basis. And I suppose yeah. the, the uncertainty is, okay, but whose judgment is a step too far you know if you have two dentists in the room they may think well actually you know you should be proceeding with that and another say well no i don't think you should you know who who makes that judgment call and until we've actually sort of seen some working examples mm -hmm. it's uh it's it's not too easy to to see exactly where the the red line is if, if you like yeah. um but beyond that they've as i said they've they've left um, in terms of the scope of praxis, they're leaving that really to more local management, cool. uh, whilst at the same time making clear that they're going to be flexible about what they're investigating, what they regulate, and um, saying not saying that they're going to withdraw altogether. In fact, they still say there's a vital role for regulation, so they will intervene, they will investigate complaints and, and things like that. But they are trying to send the message out that you know they're going to give people a little room to move because obviously the completely novel situation that uh, we all find ourselves in sure so with the investigations and such like that are ongoing i mean presumably you know business as usual somehow needs to carry on have they uh, you know have they said anything about how they intend to conduct business as usual they have, uh, and that from point of obviously that's that's been dis disseminated quite widely amongst the lawyers because we all need to know what's happening with the cases that we've been working on. And of course, there are a number of dentists around the country who are still somewhere through you know in the system and whose cases haven't haven't uh, concluded yet. And in terms of what business can continue as usual, it really depends on what kind of um, what stage the investigation's at and what kind of hearings we're looking at. So what they've said is, for example, when you're looking at fitness, fitness to practice investigations as a whole, uh, we can distinguish between cases that are, that are due to go through to a final public hearing and those that are still in the earlier stages of investigatory, uh, the investigatory process. So what they've said is that any professional conduct committee hearings, and those are the, the full public hearings, which are effectively like the trial where they you know, make findings of facts and then make this, you know, um, substantive decisions on registration. Any cases that are in the diary to start before the 30th of June this year have been postponed. Mm -hmm. And they have a sort of a plan in place that, end, that they're going to relist those hearings between July and December 2020, I think. Most of us raise an eyebrow um, skeptically uh, about that being an ambitious 
target but it, it yeah. makes sense that they should try to yeah. to keep keep things moving along but those are the substantive hearings those ones obviously can uh, it sometimes take two three four weeks sometimes longer to conclude they involve multiple um participants they have live evidence and in effect in effect these hearings are run like a crown court trial you know so you have if you want the, the jury is the, the panel members one of which is always going to be a practicing dentist you know and so you've got uh, and then you've got the uh, any witnesses and things like that. So they're quite difficult to manage remotely. But there are other kinds of hearings where we have you know, sort of one day review hearings, interim orders um, committees, which effectively conduct risk assessments to see whether or not some sort of restriction should be put in place while the main investigation is going on. Those hearings are very much earmarked to continue. In fact, we know from our own experience that these hearings have continued to take place, but they're doing it remotely. So no one's actually in the room together. Everything is done through Skype for business, um, which thankfully is a system that we at Hempson's use every day. So we're familiar with it, but those who don't use it are going to become familiar with it. And they send guidance um, sheets out to, to anyone who needs to participate. And, uh, and yeah, the, the, the anecdotal feedback uh, has been that it's, it's worked and I wouldn't be surprised actually if once the lid's lifted and everything goes back to normal, we may find more and more of these hearings are con conducted in this way anyway. So interim short hearings uh, and background investigations, they're very much still continuing, but what has been paused is the full public hearings just because of the, the, the health and safety risks associated with people. Congregating in a room like that. So, with the, the the Skype hearings, I mean that that there must be some practical uh, considerations that need to be taken into account. There, I mean, it, it's fine. You, you and I, for example, are talking over Skype here, here right now. But, I mean, how how does that how how do you how do you take instructions from your client when when you're on a Skype meeting, for example? Um, well, it's it's obviously not. It's not an ideal situation, of course, to you, um, but it is it is workable, provided it's just you and your clients, I suppose. And that's another reason why the full public hearings are more difficult, because you might have experts and counsel and, you know, whatever. But if it's just you and your client, then what, I suppose your two practical options uh, are either you can temporarily withdraw from the Skype meeting, you can just drop out of it. And then when you're ready to get back in, you just click rejoin meeting and then there you are, you're, so to speak, back in the room. Or you can just mute the Skype call and, and, and have your client on the phone and speak about it um, face, you know, face to face, if you know what I mean, or phone to phone rather. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and it's a way around it. And, and again, the experience from out from those those who, who've done a couple of these hearings over the, the couple of weeks since since we went into lockdown is that it does work uh, and it, it is doable. It's ideally you know, you'd, it's always better to be able to sit face to face with your client. But uh you know it, it, it's uh, it's not possible at the moment but it but it, it it does work and it has worked yeah i think it's you're right it's interesting that you know there are innovations happening throughout the world at the moment that are going to mean that the world never goes back to precisely the same place and there are going to be changes to the way we work and and clearly i think it's you know, skype video conferencing is going to be a factor and a greater presence within all of our lives forever now because of what's going on at the moment uh, which I is got to be a good right. thing for, for you know, minimizing travel uh, yeah well uh, absolutely i mean of course you know the, this is uh, the gdc is a is the national regulator um but all of the hearings take place in london that's obviously absolutely fine for, for us uh, because we're in london but of course you know 
there are thousands of dentists and 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 uh, a large number of lawyers who do this work who aren't in London. And so, mm. uh, it, you know, if uh, if we're able to have a structure where there isn't such a need to travel up and down the country, and then of course if you have hearings that are two weeks long and you're from Somerset as a dentist but you need to then hole up in a London hotel for three weeks you know it's incredibly expensive so if we can find ways to minimize that cost and have things managed remotely it it will be quicker it'll be cheaper uh, and uh, yeah so long as the technology works and of course that's the caveat is that it doesn't always work and there are times particularly when there's a large volume of people using it there's you know we, we've all had experience um of calls cutting out and obviously I, I hope it doesn't happen in the middle of this podcast but you know it, it does uh, uh, but it does it does happen but you know the reality is that i, th I think people would manage to cope and so uh, i agree that it, it may well be something that features far more prominently um mm. even once the pandemic is is um is done with and we can go back to normal yeah absolutely we're all learning new tricks on the subject of which i hope you saw what i did there cpd very good uh, very good i am i'm getting Se very good Se at seamless yeah. seamless almost seamless um i can imagine that cpd might not necessarily be um top of everyone's list at the moment but clearly you know again business as usual somehow we have to keep the, the show must go on have they said anything about how what they're expecting on, on cpd they have and actually interestingly when you look on the gdc's website they said that a number of practitioners have have raised concerns about meeting their CPD cycle. Obviously, I'm not sure who, who the individuals are that are particularly concerned about it. But of course, it is a, it is a, a requirement in order for um, not just dentists, but people of many different professions to, to maintain their, their their registration, their license to practice. And in dentistry, of course, they have a they have a five year cycle of CP, CPD and a, a sort of number of hours they're supposed to hit. Um, but the GDC has made clear in terms that they're, they're sympathetic to anyone who's at risk of not hitting their target for this uh, year's cycle. And basically what they've said is that provided you managed to clock at least 10 hours last year, it would be fine if you clock zero hours this year. Um, and they'll, you know, they're, they're not going to come down on you like a ton of bricks if you haven't. And, and the quote I've got in front of me is to say, uh, but to be absolutely clear, nobody will be removed from the register because of a lack of access to CPD during this crisis period. I mean, as a regulatory defence lawyer, I don't think I've ever come across a case of someone being removed from the register just for not doing their CPD. But obviously, it is a it is it is a requirement, and so it's it's right that the GDC is given that kind of reassurance. Um, but at the same time, they do highlight that you know there are uh, what we're talking about is. A concern that face-to-face -face seminars, uh, you know, and, and you know the sort of national, sometimes weekend-long, um, uh, you know, GDP updates that people might go to, that they can't happen. But of course, there's a there's an enormous amount of online material available, um, not least webinars and and podcasts like the one we're doing now. This mm -hmm. is learning, you know, and yeah. um, and I don't think it would be too difficult for most uh, practitioners to clock up. Um, 10 hours uh, yeah. online. Um, obviously, then there's the distinction between verifiable and non-verifiable CPD and all that kind of stuff. But the point is, I wouldn't take it as carte blanche just to ignore your CPD. The point is, they're just making is that look, we're not going to, we're not going to bust you uh, if you just because you've not got your hours in. But do try to keep it going if you can. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, moving back into the sort of the COVID. 19 specifics um 
we were talking this morning in the medical webinar, medical regulation webinar, about uh, a lot about uh, practitioners returning to practice. What, what about dental practitioners here? And and because obviously a lot of them will, you know, not be registered anymore. And how how is that going to work? What have the GDC said here? Well, ultimately, not for us is what they said. I mean, the, 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 there's the COVID, sorry, the coronavirus bill um, has given the GMC and the NMC and HCPC the power to, to recall people who uh, aren't registered anymore, people who um, deregistered for whatever reason within in the last three or four years or so. Um, they've not given the same power to the GDC. Uh, I can only assume because they've not perceived that there's as urgent a need to get dentists back in the front line. Um, uh, but uh, so at the moment that the GDC doesn't have that power, there's no intention uh, for them to be sort of very quickly uh, recalling practitioners from registration. Of course, it is possible for non-registered GD uh, uh, dentists, sorry, to, to re-register they would have to do that through the traditional routes of uh, applying for restoration in the usual way. Um, and I should also point out that there's no suggestion that if you are a practitioner with restrictions on your registration, so if you're suspended or you've got conditions on your uh, registration which you know, prevent you from doing certain types of work, there's no indication from any of the regulators that those individuals uh, will be permitted you know, to, to wipe the slate clean and come back to work. Um, so it's very much as a focus, even with the, you know, the, the doctors and social workers and the like who are being uh, brought back into it, that they need to be people with a clean bill of health, if you like, and, uh, and with no fitness to practice issues. I see. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So you talked earlier on about um, the other regulatory bodies uh, and and across across the UK um, and that it is those bodies that have done most of the, the detailed uh, structural work here. So can you talk us through a little bit of, around what what the other regulators have said? I'm, I'm guessing NHS England is probably uh, and what they've had to say is probably the best place to start, isn't it? Because they're, they're in terms of numbers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the NHS England, uh, and then you've got the Directorate of Primary Health Science in Wales, the Health and Social Care Board in Northern Ireland, and the Population Health Directorate, Health Directorate, sorry, in Scotland. They've all released their own guidance, more or less similar times. I think NHS England was slightly lagging behind, you know, so they're always a couple of days behind the others, but they're all broadly saying the same sort of thing now. So as of uh, the sort of the tail end of March effectively what NHS England if you ask me about that um, uh, is saying is that any routine non-urgent dentistry is to stop so that includes you know all your, your checkups your your, your, your your screenings orthodontics anything that is just routine not um, not urgent is to stopped and then basically postponed and I've had that experience myself I had a, a message last week from my dentist I was supposed to have a checkup I think sometime next week and that's been bumped off until whenever I can go but it's just a checkup so that's mm -hmm. urgent and um, what they then also said so they sort of they've they've they set up various different um, uh, requirements guidances that that uh, that practitioners should follow so what they're suggesting is that you know that there should be telephone triage um that patients shouldn't be allowed to just drop in as they were before any any kind of appointment um 
to assess the urgency of the of the treatment need, for example, needs to be dealt with by phone first, and then there can be an assessment about whether or not that patient should come in. Uh, and in England, what they're suggesting, and ultimately it's the same for the other three nations as well, is that there should be an urgent care service um, yeah. so that basically they provide advice, they can prescribe analgesia, antibiotics if they need to, that sort of thing, and still focusing very much on prescribing appropriately. It's a bit of a balance here because, of course, one of the things the GDC has been very hot on and also at local level been very hot on is dentists not just handing out antibiotics like sweets and in the past it, it had been a problem for example a lot of dentists were handing out were prescribing um antibiotics prophylactically so before performing extractions and, and maxillofacial surgery and things like that they would give antibiotics to prevent the possibility of infections but there was actually no scientific basis for doing that very much something that had been frowned upon and the guidance the anti antimicrobial prescribing guidelines making very clear that that's not what you're supposed to do but oddly enough there seems to be a bit of a jar with that because now it's very much give them advice over the phone prescribe antibiotics if you need to but then i just wonder if you have a dentist who's confronted with a patient who says i'm in pain um coming from, emanating from whichever tooth well the dentist would ordinarily be going into that patient's mouth to try and resolve that uh, that issue and not just mm. give them analgesia and uh, antibiotics but that appears to be what they're supposed to do now so mm. it's uh it's uh it's not straightforward but at the same time they have given some quite clear guidelines about the kind of work and ultimately just anything routine is to stop and that's the same across all four nations yeah so is is the guidance precisely the same across across the rest of the uk or are there it's 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 broad it's broadly the same there are some some slight variations for example i found it quite interesting that um the other three so wales scotland northern ireland all very directly were talking about aerosol generating procedures um uh, being something that should stop whereas energy yeah. england hadn't specifically referred to that um but ultimately that's now all caught up in the idea that routine dentistry should now stop so they are now broadly all in sync because they're effectively saying it should just be urgent treatment pres prescribing painkillers prescribing um, antibiotics via pharmacists and basically anything that can be delayed should be delayed and that is really the message coming across uh, all the other all of the nation um all of the four home nations so that's that's the way it should be managed and so ultimately you're going to see a huge well, basically a drop in 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 patients being seen altogether and uh, a larger proportion of them then being dealt with on the telephone sent to urgent care um, centers if there is a, a, an immediate need for treatment uh -huh. okay so it's I mean, it's, it's great to see that there is good alignment uh, across, across the nation isn't it um and know that some one of the things that that has been thought about here is dental practitioners in in non-dental roles how does that work what what what's, what's behind the need for that thinking and and, and what 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 have the regulators come up with in, uh, for this situation well in terms of the need for it it's ultimately it's ultimately um driven by the fact that there is such a, well there's a growing burden on the nhs because of the number of covid19 uh, patients coming in 
um, that there is a need to effectively rally the troops and get as many people in. Of course, there's been a, a lot of publicity about volunteers being asked to come and help with delivering supplies and, and what have you. And of course, dental uh, dental dental practitioners have clinical training. They're, they're obviously yeah. it's mm -hmm. quite different to the training that doctors go through. But there are some things uh, that dentists have been trained. For example, they're obviously all experts in cross infection control uh, and and they're prescribing antibiotics and things like that. Uh, and these kind of roles, you know, particularly if you had a you know a dental nurse, for example, could go in and and work effectively as a healthcare assistant in a hospital. Yeah. I think that's the kind of thing they have in yeah. mind. Mm -hmm. But they've not given specifics about what they really mean as in and i'm i've you know sort of been trying to rummage around and try to get some anecdotal um you know uh feedback about what what is actually being asked of people but it is very very new i mean the the call there's a there's a for example, the, there's a, a questionnaire that's been put up by NHS England, but only on the 30th of March. It's only four days, five days old now, uh, where you, you feed in your your relevant experience, you know, what kind of qualifications you've got, what your experience is, um, and what your skill set is, the kind of work you'd be prepared to do, you know, whether it's face-to-face -face or telephone triage, that sort of thing. And then they presumably will, will feed you into whatever roles. And obviously, I was stymied in my attempts to sort of test run that because I'm not dentally qualified. So I had to stop as soon as I got to the screen asking for my GDC registration number. So I, I'm not able to say exactly what practically they're being asked to do, but they are being asked to support the wider COVID-19 response and you know what they're saying is by using their professional skills and experience so, outside the normal range of dental and oral health activities um, so yeah it's it's um it's not necessarily a clear uh, but ultimately what they're, they're they're still the GDC is still saying you know well you know satisfy yourself that you're competent to perform tasks so provided it's something that you think you can competently do then by all means get involved have any sort of necessary training that you need and make a considered judgment about whether or not it's something that you can do. Um, you know, the, the, but the interesting sort of conflict, if I want to use that word, is that it's then effectively asking dental practitioners to push them outside their usual scope of practice, yeah. but at the same time saying, and this is a quote, that doesn't make the scope of practice irrelevant. So, uh, so again, it's you know deciding where to stick your oar in and where not um, is something that's perhaps not that straightforward. And I guess the question that uh, as 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 lawyers screams out at us from here is what about indemnity? Are you taking dental practitioners out of their usual role? How, how, how on earth does that work? Well, the first the first point is that um, the coronavirus bill uh, obviously has, has made clear that anyone who is getting stuck in and coming involved to um, to help with the coronavirus battle, um, that the state indemnity that applies to medical uh, staff uh, would extend to, to any practitioner, that would include dental practitioners, if to the extent that what they're doing uh, is an NHS activity responding to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and what they said is, a, again, it's a bit vague, and obviously they don't have any power over who actually provides indemnity cover, but the GDC has effectively said, and this is, again, I'm quoting from their guidance, saying it, indemnity should not be an issue where support of this kind is being provided to the NHS since the Coronavirus Act provides cover for any liabilities beyond the scope of existing cover. And so 
what they're saying is basically if you go and do something in a hospital or whatever NHS setting to try and help with the coronavirus um, uh, you know, uh, effort uh, and someone sues you, you'll be covered by the NHS um, uh, scheme that, that provide, you know, the, um, the clinical negligence scheme for trust it's called, that covers um, practitioners. Um, but it's really important to remember that it's only claims it's only if you're sued that this scheme covers you so it's really important obviously all dentists have to be registered with an indemnity provider anyway but to but to remember that the state protection won't cover you for regulatory disciplinary um kind of complaints so if you refer to the gdc or nhs england or whatever uh, some sort of complaint is made um then that you would still need your defense organization so whichever organization you're registered with you'd still need to make sure that that organization is providing adequate cover for the work you're doing and so you need to just check with them um, to see whether or not you can tick the boxes before you get involved yeah okay well yeah that, that makes sense okay so we were talking earlier on about the fact that you know day-to-day -day dental practice needs to stop checkups need to stop routine stuff needs to stop there are there are businesses here um there are businesses here that are, that are presumably going to be suffering the the, the financial consequences of, of that routine activity stopping just the same as in every other walk of life at the moment yeah. how, how does that work for dentistry though because clearly routine is routine urgent is urgent um in other walks of life if for example you're furloughing employees that's it that they're not working but it seems that, that we need some more flexibility here don't we for, for, for things like dentistry is, is there any is there any flexibility in the system do you, do you think well it's not about what i think i mean that we've been told that there is um there is some flexibility um in terms of for example there's been some specific guidance about what will happen if you don't meet your UDA targets for the year and obviously uh, the GDC acknowledging that this time of year towards the end of the financial year is usually a very busy time for dentists you know getting lots and lots of patients through the door and 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 and, and making sure that they're hitting their targets and of course what we're talking about then is re reconciliation clawbacks making sure that you've hit your targets so that you're not effectively then having to pay um NHS England or whichever body it is back um for the for the work that you've um uh, been uh, carrying out and there has been um, uh, some guidance making clear um, that there will be um, some room to move about that and uh, there'll be some protections put in place to make sure that um, you know income is protected and, 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 and such like and so forth um, but it's still again a bit of a developing uh, picture and I think some people are going to need to see some working examples of, of how it actually, you know, case by case basis as to what it really means. I think one of the ironies, of course, is that there are there have been a large number of dentists who sort of turned away from NHS practice because it's with the the dental contract that came in in 2006 made it much harder to generate a, a sort of you know, decent living uh, out of a dental dentistry practice. They've moved further and further away to. Um, to private practice exclusively, and of course, it's a 
you know, it's, it's it's sort of well known that it's quite often difficult to find an NHS dentist. The irony being that it's the protections in place are very much for NHS dentists with private practitioners very much more in the dark about whether or not they can furlough their staff, whether or not they're going to be protected by Rishi um, Sunak's you know, the declaration that we can all, uh, as companies, make uh, an application to get 80% of wages covered and things like that. But I understand that the BDA is still very much campaigning for clarity to make sure that private dental practitioners are covered in the same sort of way, but it's still not being completely crystallized. And so there is a lot of uncertainty and, I, I, and it obviously that's something going to be stressing a lot of uh, practitioners out uh, across mm. the country about what's going to happen over the coming weeks. But hopefully, yeah, there will be some further clarity. Um, and, and reality is I, the, the, the dentistry is not unique in that sense. There are people yeah. up and down the country in a very similar situation where they don't really know where they stand in terms of the ability to furlough their staff and make sure that everyone remains paid. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, maybe that's something. Um, you know, if if there's further clarity down the line, maybe maybe that's something we can we can return to in in a, a future dental regulation podcast. Mm. For now, I think we are probably getting close to our, our wrapping up time for this one. Uh, just really wanted to finish off by asking you, you know, what what do you think of the sort of main take home points that that uh, dental practitioners need to bear in mind? over the next sort of coming weeks and months what are, what are the key issues do you think just to recap sure well i mean the the, the headline uh, the headlines sort of message from the gdc and from you know the, the four nation uh, national regulators is routine dentistry must stop and there's also been some on that some uh, um, guidance issues from the cqc who we've not mentioned so far uh, effectively saying, you know, we've we un, we, we've heard that there are some practices continuing to see patients for routine treatment despite us telling you not to. And if we find out that this is true, we're going to effectively we're coming to get you. So they are taking it very seriously. It's yeah. uh, you know, it, it seems a very sort of ironic um, situation for dentists to be in to be criticised for treating patients as opposed to not treating them. But that's that's where we are. It's about safeguarding. Um, you know, uh, people's health. It's about protecting yourself, your staff, and your patients. So very much routine dentistry is to stop. Now, the problem that really needs to be monitored, and I would just sort of caution people to to, to tread carefully, is where the line is between urgent treatment and uh, and uh, non-urgent treatments. As in, so where are you permitted to then get the patient in, and ultimately expose yourself and that patient to coronavirus risk because they have to have that treatment now. And the GDC is going to be um, open-minded. They said they'll be flexible, you know, that uh, that they'll be sympathetic to ultimately your your right to protect yourself and your staff and your patients during, during what is an absolutely terrifying um, pan pandemic. But in terms of actually what they're going to come down on, you know, what, what which categories of case are they going to say well no you've crossed the line there and we're going to step in and do something until we've seen some working examples we just don't really know and of course it's so early on we're talking all this guidance we've been talking about is all days old you know it's very very new and you know it, even at the best of times you know it can sometimes take months and months and months before we really know what the impact of a new piece of guidance actually is and so unfortunately as much as things have to move quickly 
it's still ultimately the, no different to anything else. We really need just to see how things unfold over the, the weeks and months in, in front of us. Stephen, thank you very much. That's been extremely enlightening. I should just point out that your telephone number, if anyone needs to get in touch with you, is 020-7484-7568. Your email address, Stephen's email address is s.hooper at hempsons.co.uk. And you can also follow Stephen on Twitter. Uh, Stephen's Twitter handle is at Hooper underscore Stephen, Stephen with a PH. It just remains for me, Stephen, to say thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we will be back with part two of Stephen's double podcast, uh, which is going to cover medical regulation. Thank you very much. <laughs>